everybody. Welcome to a beautiful, cold night at Emmaus Way. It's nice to see everyone. Keep those hula hoops going up there. See how long you can do it. This is a song by Over the Ride called All I Need Is Everything. It's a matter of will Someone's circling Someone's moving A little lower than the angels And it's got nothing to do with me The wind blows through the trees If I look for it, it won't come I tend to my mind goes numb There's nothing harder Got plenty of time to kill. No handwriting on the wall. Just a voice that's in us all. And you're whispering to me. It's time to get up off my hands and knees. Cause if I beg for it, it won't come. I find nothing to table crumbs. My hands are empty.
Tim, and welcome to Emmaus Way. It's good to see you guys this evening. Everybody ready for some snow? Is what's the official snow report? I think tomorrow afternoon or something like that. There, yeah. Which in, in North Carolina, what that means is you spread lots of salt on the roads, and when you do that, there's no snow. But uh, but anyway, hey. So the guys behind there's a big crew behind me back here. How are you guys doing? Um, these guys are going to lead us in our community song tonight. So you guys ready to lead us in that? Yeah. All right. We have major enthusiasm going here. This is this is a big week. You guys ready? Fantastic. Thank you, guys. You guys got your warm gear on. You're ready. In case it snows back there in the back, you'll be set. <laughs> there have been days when it would have snowed in the back of the Reality Center, believe me. I think we actually have heat this year. You know, we thought in the early days, let's make those kids work. You know, air conditioning, heating and cooling, that's for wimps. Uh, but uh, I think we've actually hit at least the 18th century now these days. So anyway, hey, welcome. It's good to see everybody here this evening. And uh, just a few announcements, and then I'll turn it right back over to Mark. Uh, you know, one of the things we say every week for us is that Emmaus Way is a gospel community. We're a group of people that are committed to living in a vision of the gospel that shapes the way that we relate to each other and we, the way we relate to the community around us and the world and its needs. And one of the things that's, that's significant to us is to be a people who are looking for the trade and the marks of God's good work and mercy and redemption in our community and trying to participate in that work. And we do that in lots of different ways, several many exciting partnerships for us. And it's, it's, it's part of our way of living as a community. And it's always great to do it with you guys and to gather each week around the table as well as to gather to hear each, voice, each other's voices around a, a biblical text. So 
Again, great to see everybody. I think the main announcement this week is that it is Ash Wednesday on Wednesday night. And again, Emmaus Way does the best that we possibly can to live into the church calendar. And this is a, um, it, it, Easter I think has been such a deeply powerful time for us. A, because we have lived through Lent. And we have started that with Ash Wednesday. Um, Monday, Thursday, when we get near uh, into Holy Week is an opportunity for us to live into not just the resurrection of Christ on Easter, but the death of Christ. So this is a, a great Sunday for that. We're going to do something different this year. We've typically done kind of a, a more of a home-based operation on Ash Wednesday, but a Monument of Faith, which is a fairly large uh, um, multiracial church in downtown Durham has asked us to participate with them. I'm actually going to be speaking that night, so you'll have to endure that, but I think the rest of it will be good, and uh, it's a, it, as I've looked at the gathering, it'll, it'll look somewhat familiar to Emmaus Way. They're pretty liturgical, and um, we'll have some of the same texts and things that you would have expected to hear, but we will send out a reminder on about Monday or Tuesday to remind you about that, but Monument of Faith is very near central. Uh, it starts at 7 o'clock. I think I may have said 7.30 last week, and I had that wrong. It's 7 o'clock. And this is just a reminder as well. Somebody was laughing last week. Emmaus Way has like two or three different lists. Um, and there's information out there, but you should typically get a, a, an email once a week from us that is an update for what's happening. It gives you the text for the week, conversation about what's happening on Sunday. And so if, you're, if you don't get that, then, then you may want to be on that list. We also have another list that's a social list. and It's one that just describes life in our community, and it's one that um, often involves uh, things that people are doing and need. It'd be a place if you had a, a sofa that you wanted to give away or needed something from somebody or that sort of thing. That's what that's for. So if you don't get those emails and you want to, you probably could just fill out that um, one of the, the yellow card out there, put it in the basket, and we will get you on that list. But look for that on Monday or Tuesday just as a reminder for where Ash Wednesday is, and we'll give some good directions and a address for that as well. And Mark, one of the things, I, I was looking at the music tonight, and uh, in so many ways, the conversation for this evening is going to begin so powerfully musically as we look at Second Kings and then the book of Mark. The, this is Transfiguration Sunday in the life of the church, um, but some themes that are going to pop up. One is permanence and impermanence and holding on and living in a moment when the world is changing. Is that an accurate assessment of some of the music you've chosen tonight? Or? Definitely. Yeah, that was definitely on my mind, and especially because this first one, Impermanent Things, an old Peter Himmelman song we haven't done in a while. But yeah, that was that's definitely. Um, I think about the story of the transfiguration that will. I guess we're reading that one tonight. It's definitely on the list, right? It's on there somewhere. But it's, um, you know, I, I'm struck by how in that story, um, Peter does this thing that seems very natural, which is he says like, "Hey, this is awesome. Why don't we just stay here? I'll build these little houses, and we can all stay here." And then it becomes clear that that's not at all the plan. That's not at all what's supposed to happen. And so I, I couldn't help but think about this song uh, when, I, when I was looking at that story earlier this week in a text team. Isn't 
permanent things Oh how they fool me They dominate and rule me They keep me waiting here forever All these impermanent things Oh their beauty's never aging But their worthlessness and raging You know we always stand alone when we're together So I keep leaning on To things that never stay Things that just keep stringing us All these impermanent things They're present yet elusive And passive yet abusive They're tearing out the heart in utter silence All these impermanent things Will they point in all directions Just like second-hand reflections us to subtle shades of violence So I keep hanging on To things that never stay Things that just keep stringing us along Day to day my soul and rinse me and purge my mind of honesty and fire all these impermanent things will they all add up to zero make believe that they're my heroes they fill my mind with doubt and false desire so I Things that never stay Things that just keep stringing us along
guys, um, this is a chance for us to take a moment before we jump into the text tonight. Uh, the text, uh, if you saw the email, we're going to be looking at 2 Kings tonight as well as uh, Mark chapter 9, which is the transfiguration story. So anyway, we'll, uh, if you want to peek at those uh, while we do the piece, you certainly can do that as well. But I want to give you an opportunity to stand up and greet the people that are around you and uh, say hello. If you're around somebody that you don't know, certainly introduce yourself. Uh, the um, Thanks to, where, where's Ben? I saw Ben Hoskruz in. Uh, ben, I think you may have saved us tonight by coming early and turning... Or, or, or Amanda came early and set up the thermostat because I was looking at you guys and you're like, you're very huddled. Like Wendy looks like she's getting ready to break that chair to 
for some firewood. And uh, I was thinking about Skylar was playing piano in, uh, in, the, in the cold. Uh, but had not Amanda come and turn the thermostat up at, at one today, uh, there used to be a church that met here in the mornings. They don't anymore. And so uh, the thermostat is not up. And, I, and even after your work, it was about 59. So I was like, whew, it would have been cold in here. So Amanda, you are our hero tonight. You can have... <laughs> so thank Amanda. Offer everybody the peace of Christ. Uh, make sure that you hug Amanda and thank you, thank her. And uh, please greet each other. And I'll call us back in just a second. Hey, I'm curious. Did um, did anyone march yesterday uh, at the uh, at the uh, historic thousands uh, march. So Steve was there. I was there. I, I was looking around to see if I could see anyone. I was, I was um, up front. You guys know um, I'm participating as well as uh, doing research on the, uh, the moral movement in North Carolina. So uh, Thursday I was lying and playing dead in the rotunda for the, the die-in for uh, Medicaid expansion and a variety of things. But it's been a full week. Very, very, very interesting in terms of kind of uh, living that out. So I was wondering if anybody was there as well. So um, just as preparation tonight, we're going to we're going to look at uh, both the um, the Mark text as well as the Second Kings text. You'll notice on your your page uh, that. Mark, the second Second Corinthians, is actually Mark, so uh, just be prepared for that. I also wanted to say, just as a quick greeting, um, um, there's a, another community of people that gather with us every week, and it's on our podcast. Uh, we're really thankful. We hear from some folks that are, are podcasters that are out of state and far away, but are truly kind of here every week. And so want to welcome you uh, as well as thank you for the letters and things that sometimes we get. Josh gets them and Mark gets them and I do. It's really thankful. It's just interesting to realize that this conversation extends beyond the people in the room. And, and sometimes they know people like somebody said, hey, that Andrew guy had a good point last week and, and somebody who had, you know, hadn't been here, you know, ever. They, they don't actually say that. Let's not scratch that. Yeah, that's actually not Andrew. You're right. Let's scratch that. It wasn't Andrew. I'm sure it was somebody else. Exactly. You're on probation tonight, Andrew. So. I wasn't surprised that you anything I say Exactly. Exactly. The, uh, so I want to start us thinking about these texts tonight from the, the kind of the trope of farewells. And I want to mention two different types of farewells. Um, the, the first farewell, and, and I think sometimes these happen in very sad circumstances, is the farewell that you know is, is coming and you know you're in the middle of it when you're in that farewell. For example, I imagine a lot of you have done this. I've, I've done this with my granddad and others who were dying. And especially if you live far away and you may go on a visit and you, you go and see them and it's a chance to kind of remember your relationship, remember their, their, um, 
their friendship. And, and you may have done this in a little less dramatic way with somebody who's moving far away, though probably that's more of a, a pre-Facebook social media kind of farewell. But, uh, but you, you get that one last visit in. And, and, and it, one of the things that's really bizarre about that type of farewell, I can remember with my granddad, was this kind of weird lingering. My granddad was not a big talker. He was a farmer and he was one of those kind of get down to business type of people. He was a storyteller, but he was not a very emotional person, but I was very close to them. We um, lived right at kind of one of those little plots in front of the farm that the kids buy type of thing. So I, I grew up you know, in his front yard, basically. And I can remember the kind of farewell visit. This was over 20 years ago. But you're just, you know that there's this arbitrary ending, is that they're not going to be alive the next time that you see them. And so you, there's this tendency that you linger, and you linger way too long, even though there's nothing to say, because you, it's, it's arbitrary of your kind of in-the-body relationship with this person is going to end as soon as you walk out of the room. And so that's an odd, and it's a, it's it's a very, very intense, it's a very dramatic kind of farewell. We're going to look at a farewell like that, uh, but it is a farewell that you know you're in it. You're in that moment, you know you're saying farewell. Now let's think of about another type of farewell. This is one that is uh, perhaps uh, a subtle farewell, or perhaps that it, it might even be too subtle for you even to know that you're in the middle of this farewell. Perhaps your life experience is too minimalistic so that you don't know that you're saying farewell. It's one of those moments, like the relationship is over, uh, he or she is going to move out or break up, the decision's been made, but no one has said it yet. So you know you're in the middle of it, or you don't know you're in the middle of it, but it's over. The relationship is over. It's ending. A decision has been made, but for some reason no one says it out loud. Or perhaps one of the persons in the, in the relationship or friendship or whatever isn't aware that it's going to change um, going forward. So two types of farewells. One that you know it's a dramatic moment. Another that's kind of a subtle moment. You look back and you say, you know what? And this happens all the time. I see this with kids having gone through high school. You'll say, oh, you know, so-and-so, you guys were great friends, but you haven't texted that person or talked to that person in three or four months. Do you remember when you went from we texted like three times a day and talked all day long to, you know what, I don't know what that person's up to. And, and somewhere there was some sort of change, but maybe no one in the relationship knew that that change was happening right when it was happening. So we're going to look at those type of farewells tonight. Um, two farewells, a dramatic farewell and one that may not have been recognized as such. Now, before we plunge into 2 Kings, I also want to restate to Mark, um, as we look at these two texts, Mark has put out three phenomenal texts for us in terms of the music that we've done. Uh, you know, I'm always on the inside because I'm prepared and I know what we're going to talk about to some degree, but Foo Fighters talking about kind of a dramatic moment in the world that one lives in and the issues of impermanence and clinging to things desperately, those three texts will help you in terms of reading the text that we look at. So I hope you'll use those as a frame of reference as well. But let's jump into 2 Kings with somebody being willing to read. This is the farewell. Steve, we'll have you do this. This is the, the farewell, the dramatic uh, quote-unquote death of Elijah uh, with assistant Elisha in, in short view. So, 
Now when the Lord was about to take Elisha up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elisha and Elisha, Elijah and Elisha, were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Elijah said to him, Elisha, stay, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and I, as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Be silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. For the Lord has sent me to Jordan, to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the company of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water. The water was parted to the one uh, The water was parted to the one side and to the other, until the two of them crossed on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me what I may do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha said, Please let me inherit a double share of your spirit. He responded, You have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I am being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. As they continued walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended in a whirlwind into heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. But when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. So this is a dramatic story and a dramatic farewell, and I don't mean to make light of it, but I, I kept reading it this week, and I kept having images of like a Monty Python scene in this, because it's some, you know, there's Elijah and Elisha walking together, but there's this company of prophets, you know, at a distance, <laughs> kind of watching, and I'm wondering what, I mean, I would have loved their reaction here uh, with, as a chariot of fire emerges into the scene, but it's, it's kind of an interesting scene, and uh, let me turn this to you first of kind of what strikes you about this scene uh, in terms of uh, elements of it? What, what do you see in it? It reminds me of Ruth not leaving Naomi, how Elisha won't leave Elijah. Yeah, there is a, a, the same kind of passionate relational clinging that, that happens outside of a marriage or a, a romantic relationship. It's a, this, in this case, it's master and apprentice but with, uh, with uh, Ruth, it was mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Very similar. In fact, some of the kind of the same emotions behind that. Sure. Yeah, I don't, that's not filled in, but, it, but everybody is commenting on the fact that this is the day. Yeah. I, yes, I was going to say, I found it interesting that Elijah, with J, 
um, was trying to tell Elisha, no, don't, don't come any further. It's okay. I don't want this. And almost like he's saying, I don't want you to hurt by seeing me go. Um, almost like he was protecting him. Yeah, and, and Elisha continues to travel with him. Yeah. yeah. True. Any other reactions? Yeah, this, and silence is going to pop up in the second text as well. What do you all make of that? What do you think? That, it's very interesting. Yeah, I was thinking that he was like, I don't, I don't want Elijah to hear me so he can tell me to stay again. I, that's, what I, that's what I thought, but I, you know, I don't think that's what it meant. It's just a humorous addition to the story that involves a dramatic deified chariot emergence. <laughs> it's just kind of very, very unique. I think it's, um, it's Elisha respect, respecting that Elijah's going to go. So if, if Elijah doesn't want to make a big scene, that's why he keeps saying, going to be leaving you now. You stay here. You stay here. Some people don't like dramatic comics. Um, and uh, then Elisha's respecting that, right? Because, can you imagine, if he said to the prophets, oh yes, I know, and it's all kind of, you know, break into tears right now. He seems to be trying to respect letting Elijah sort of manage this, this process. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to ask you to read this now from two different historical lenses. For the first question, you are, you are a Jewish person. You're a faithful, uh, maybe the same era, but you're, you're a, a first century or maybe pre-life of Christ Jew. And this is part of your holy text. This is the, the part of the scriptures that uh, are, would be prophetic historical narratives of the works of the prophets. Um, let's say that you know nothing of uh, the Messiah other than a promise coming in the future. Um, so you're in that, that, that position as a Jewish worshiper reading your scriptures, what would you notice in this text that might be interesting to you? Yeah. Um, oh. Just like a reverse um, Exodus. Um, you know, he's, he's parting the waters, and the chariot is coming for him. Yeah, it's interesting that the chariot doesn't get sunk in this one, but the, but the parting of the waters is dramatic. I mean, who did that? Moses. I mean, so so the the people that you would have acknowledged, uh, and what was what was significant about Moses? If you were Jewish or, or Christian, but in this case Jewish, what, what's significant about Moses? Yeah, there's a deep, deep intimacy between Moses and God, and in some ways, there's this an incredibly intimate death. I mean, you know, we all are a little bit nervous about our death, but if 
you know, like God showed up with a car and said, hop in. I mean, that would be, I mean, I, I would be more comfortable with that. I mean, that would, I would feel better about that. I, I, you know, I've done some wrong things over 53 years. I mean, you know, the, I always say that, you know, if I die and I, I appear and I look up and I see red chairs that need to be moved, I'm going to know that all of my theology was wrong and I'm going to be moving those damn chairs for a long, long time. And I mean in the, like the theological sense of the word damn. Uh, uh, you know, it's, but but if a car showed up, it would it it would be a big deal. And in some sense, there is this intimacy that we've had with Moses and a deep image that relates to Moses in this. I, I also wonder about the, the conquest layer to it as well, right? So it's not just Moses moving into Joshua. Because correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the Jordan also parts when they when Joshua enters in, and then and then Jericho is mentioned here and. So, so there might be that other resonance as well. Yeah, there's some, yeah, I mean, there's some deep images here. And the Jordan is one of the most ambiguous rivers at all time. I mean, it is constantly being parted and, and religious figures cruising in and out of it. But it, it, at least a couple times that happens, yes. And notice that the cities, let's remember them, uh, Jericho, uh, Bethel. Do you remember the significance of Bethel? Um, it was where Jacob, Israel, saw the face of God. Uh, and, and in the Genesis narrative, um, the story of, 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 of Jacob is a moving away from Bethel and a return to Bethel. So this is kind of a hall of fame of special religious places that are happening with some very intimate. And, and who in the Old Testament, let's add one more character, had the most dramatic deaths? Elijah, who was basically called by God. Uh, the tradition says that Moses had a similar type of death that in some ways uh, that is implied potentially that he died in a similar way. Who else would be one more? Enoch. I mean, so, I mean, there's like a hall of fame. This is like the, the three guys who got the special ride home. Um, and so perfectly. So as, as Jewish readers of this text, you would have noticed those locations, their significance, the implications, the rich biblical ancient story that's being in some way retold, re-narrated, or implied in the telling of this. <coughs> Can't see. So if, um... Elijah's crossing the Jordan away from um, Jericho, then he's going to where Moses was taken up because Moses doesn't get to cross the Jordan. He, he gets to see it and then, he, then it's gone. So he's actually going to the same location. Yeah, I mean, th- could you imagine? This is the kind of stuff the rabbis were, you know, sitting around with a wineskin talking about uh, for, for years and years and years and years. Now switch. Now you are a first century Christian, and you are reading this text as a part of the scriptures, you wouldn't have known as of a Bible at that point, though some of the letters and texts that became the New Testament were, were starting to be inscribed. But you are now sitting on the far side of Jesus having declared himself as the Messiah and, and the, the death, burial, and resurrection that transformed Christianity from a Jewish sect into an, an exploding religion. So now you're a Christian reading this text. What is significant about this text now to you from that vantage point? One thing I was going to say about the other 
what if, but this applies for this one too, is, is one thing that when you mentioned to look at it from a, a back then perspective, um, and, and I may be partially wrong or completely wrong about this, but my understanding is that um, at pretty much everybody in the Jewish tradition learns at least the, the, the first five books, the, the Torah. And then after that, they can choose a profession, uh, usually their, their father's profession, or they can choose to become a rabbi and, and, and study the, and study under a rabbi, uh, you know, becoming an apprentice to, to uh, you know, Judaism, so to speak. And so then you, you would follow your rabbi, that, that's your master, and you'd follow him and follow him and see everything he does and memorize everything he says. And so I wonder if, and I don't know if this is the case with Elijah and Elisha, but I wonder if this was almost that loyalty that, that was expected, and if he was, and if he was ex exercising that, and you know, when Elijah would say, "Don't stop," and he's like, "No, I need to go with you. I need to, I need to go with you." And so I wonder if they would notice that. Yeah, I mean um, that that whole yeah, the apprenticeship part of that would have been would have been significant, and Jew and Christian alike, kind of the passing on of the prophetic tradition would have been dramatic. I mean, that's what's dramatic between Malachi and the Gospels is the idea that there wasn't a, a prophet who took up the mantle, so to speak. Yeah. What? A, well, I was going to say, and then I also wonder if maybe they, maybe um, there might have been a thought of the apostles, the the, the remaining apostles after Jesus. Uh, ascended, are are sitting there, and they were Elisha, and Jesus was Elijah, and so I wonder if there was some 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 thoughts there. Yeah, I'll cite because I want to uh, trying to lure you guys into reading Text Week. There's a wonderful sermon on Text Week this week from Sam Wells, who is a neighbor of ours and the, what is he, the dean of the chapel at Duke Divinity School, or was the dean of the chapel, wrote an amazing sermon on, on kind of taking up the mantle. And he would have said the early Christians were precisely thinking that way, is that all of a sudden Jesus has ascended, and in their mind they would have seen themselves as having to take up the mantle to, to lead, uh, even though this, in some ways, irreplaceable figure has gone, and that's certainly the way Elijah had done. That was a powerful image for the early Christians. Somebody on this corner was, Jim. Yeah, so Elijah says, I'm leading, but I'm not, and, and Jesus said a bunch of the same thing. Mm -hmm. And also, follow that as well, who said that they, they were never going to leave Many times, but did. Peter, three times. I mean, I'll never deny you. I mean, we, Jesus, you and I, we are tight. We'll always be tight forever. And he makes an impossible promise, right? He cannot go where Jesus was going. In fact, Jesus says to them, you can't drink from my cup, but you'll learn a bit about it, but you can't do it. But then in, in some way, Elisha is promising that he is going to follow Elijah, but it's not going to happen. The chariot only picks up Elijah. And what is Elisha left with? He's holding the bag and follow that thought. Yeah, I mean, and how did Jesus put it? And it was better in a certain way. That Jesus' uh, ascension marks the age of the Spirit, which overwhelms the world with the presence of God in it, yeah? And, and isn't it interesting that what does Elisha ask for? 
kind of a double shot of Elijah. I mean, could I have like your mantle? And in some ways, I think the early church would have read it exactly like this. We are in that situation. The mantle has been given to us. Its coming has been told to us as spirit. And in some ways, we are living in the, in, in the name of the person who has gone, so to speak. And of course, uh, Elijah, the, his disappearance was so dramatic. And given a couple of the prophecies, they weren't entirely sure that he wasn't coming back. In a certain way, he did come back. So notice this, that that this text would have been read by early Christians very clearly into their circumstance. They would have seen themselves, their early early elders and early churches, as Elisha-like communities. Now let's switch and read a very similar text. One where Elijah and Moses, there's no water parting, Brandon, I'm sorry about that, but, but some of the same characters pop up. This is Mark uh, chapter 9, uh, 2 to 9, I think. Would somebody read that? Yes, this is, this is we, we, t- we took the messianic secret so seriously here uh, that we felt like it was inappropriate to even name this text as it really was. So read it really quietly, Jim. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by himself. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could use them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly they looked around. They saw no one, no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So we have another little silent thing going on here. Um, when was the last time that the voice appeared in Mark's gospel? The baptism. We read it about three weeks ago, right? And we've been reading Mark 1 in the lectionary. So notice what the lectionary has done is it squeezed together these two kind of declarations from on high about Jesus. Um, so what do you make of this text? What do you think about it? What do you, what do you see in this text that is of meaning in light of all of the texts that we've done today, musical or Second Kings? What strikes you? Yeah, I'm curious about that, and I would love for another thought or two about that, is that Peter chooses to make something permanent that is not going to be permanent. These figures are not going to remain. Even the dazzling nature of Jesus does not remain, which, by the way, reminds us of who again? 
Moses, you know, uh, and, and these intimate encounters that have happened. Uh, Brandon's our Moses guy today. <laughs> Moses. <laughs> Latin American religious scholar no more. You're a Moses guy. Uh, so, so, yeah, what do you make of these kind of permanence and permanence type of things that are happening in these texts? Some sort of striving for connection, right? I mean, Elisha about to have his mentor taken away, and he's, he's hanging on. Eventually, he asks for more of what he has. Get Peter off the hook and stay the same way. Like, you know, he's, he's seen this thing that's that's impermanent, right? It's, this is the glory of, of you know, Moses and Elijah. This is the guy I'm following. He wants to maintain it somehow. He wants to keep a connection. Yeah, Ben, what do you think? Because the chariot departs and the moment of transfiguration passes, what do you think remains from these two instances? I mean, you know, certainly in the Mark text, you've got a pretty direct message. But listen to this guy. So, but I, yeah, I, don't know. I think there's some sense of continuation of mission like we already talked about. There's something still to be done. There's It's an ongoing reality divorced from the thing of power that Yeah, I think where you're going with that, Ben, is really significant because the, the dazzling moments do not remain. But and, and we talked about this last week very specifically of what is the, the mission of people of, of God's people under the law of Christ. And there there is a very clear mission that that is kind of emerging from this. And in some ways, um, Jesus this place seems to be dramatically significant because what has he just done in Mark's gospel? Uh, some of you are familiar with this. Is uh, This has been set up, right? Uh, he's uh, one of my professors way back in the seminary days um, uh, used to say that probably the best naming of Mark's gospel was the evangelization of the twelve. It, it's really a story about twelve characters who follow Jesus around, and they're often stooges. I mean, it's, I, this is probably a better Monty Python plot than the previous one, and they just don't get it. They don't understand it. If you remember the text we read several weeks ago, who recognized Jesus? Sarah said it was the demons, but but not the disciples. They are anything but disciples in this story. They are not followers of Jesus in any kind of emotional, theological, or religious sense. They're followers in kind of a Monty Python-esque kind of running along behind him wondering what's going to happen next. But they don't get it. Um, Just previously to this, just a chapter or two earlier though, uh, Jesus pauses in a dramatic place and moment. Mark writes it as if this is the thing that we've been waiting for all along. And he says, who am I? And who who do they say you are? Some say Elijah. <laughs> He's a big guy. He's important. But I say to you that, you that you're the Messiah. And what does Jesus say immediately after that? And, and again, Jesus is urging secrecy again here. But what does he say for the first time after someone says, you're the Messiah? He starts talking about his death. And what do they say about that? Even though there's this incredible history of people who've known God intimately. Moses, Enoch, um, 
Who's the third one? Elijah. <laughs> this one. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they all had these death experiences. The disciples don't get it. They're not drawing the lines together. They don't see the connection from Elijah to John the Baptist to Jesus. Because if they did, I think they would anticipate death being part of the story. Maybe some drama tossed in, but, but certainly death. And so Jesus has put it to them, and he said that, and he started to predict his death. And he does so three times before we get to this text. And now all of a sudden we have this transfiguration with Moses and Elijah, both who had dramatic circumstances related to their death. Moses not getting into the promised land, Elijah getting a free ride. Um, What do you think this moment has to do with Jesus' death? Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a, a legacy of God's work almost seen in this visual scene of Old Testament and Messiah. Because Jesus is talking about being the Messiah, at least in Mark's gospel, for the very first time. Now Luke and John and others, he's, you know, he, he comes out of the womb and yells, I'm a Messiah, this is great! But, but not in Mark's gospel. He, he's just now saying it for the first time. But there's a legacy of God's work that's very clear here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the voice. Let's play the voice into this. Well, one thing I was noticing, um, not, not thinking about the voice specifically, but um, I mean, one thing I thought I was, I was, I was thinking is, you know, there's, there's almost this excitement like this, you know, there's, you know, it's time to do something kind of stuff. But then I was also thinking it's almost like God, through all of this, is showing them that here on earth is not permanent. But there is permanent after earth. There's another permanent thing that you really don't see, and and you know. So I wonder if maybe maybe you know, you know, Peter and John and James were seeing this and saying, wait, so so there is this other thing, and so so you know, maybe Peter was trying to build the houses because oh, there's this other you know thing. Something is happening later, but he wasn't getting the point that you know the permanent thing is not physical. It's something else. I don't yeah. know. If yeah, well, you know, this is, was my thought was very similar to this. It was part of my little setup tonight is I have a feeling that this is the unknown farewell. Uh, if, if we've seen Elijah has had this dramatic farewell and the prophets and everybody are following around saying, he's going, he's going, and Elisha doesn't get it because he's scared to death and he's following him around, but everybody knows Elijah's leaving. Uh, Jesus has just started to talk about it in Mark's gospel, but no one seems to stomach it. But we see this moment where it comes together. This moment where Jesus has declared the one that John, who was a bit crazy. We don't even know if he was sober when he made the pronouncements. But he wasn't as credible as others. And, but it seems to be coming true. And to some degree, this moment... Um, those of you who kind of took a religion class in, in, um, in college or whatever, if you remember these... Uh, um, the, the, the little catchphrase a lot of professors used to use is that Mark is, is a, a death story or a passion story of Jesus with a long introduction. 
We are nearing the end of that long introduction. And this seems to be the moment when Jesus is making it very clear that I am the chosen one. And that which is, and my chosenness is entirely implicated in leaving this life. Now, the 12 have no clue about that. But they will look back at this moment and see that this was a moment where Jesus' death, which led to resurrection which led to the coming of the Spirit and the forming of the church, in some ways it was made very clear that those were deeply intentional parts of God's plan. One last thing on this. Kind of out of order, but what do you make of the dazzling light in this scene and then the declaration of secrecy, which is kind of an odd thing to come together is they've seen something that, and they've seen Jesus in a way that they've never seen him before. Uh, in many ways, glorified, as, as, as uh, Gail has said, they've seen Jesus perhaps on the other side, if you want to say that, on the other side of his resurrection. But he urges them to be silent. Thoughts on that? Uh, Andrew, you want to take a shot? I wouldn't say that to think, in, in some ways, say that Jesus, the way the world be, is kind of almost a mistake here, right? So that it's, it's more Jesus as he is in eternity, in some ways, perhaps outside of time, depending on how you, how you think about that. And it's the same with the Elijah story, right? Elijah doesn't die the way we understand it. He, he, he's got this, this God-given life in him, which just enables him to carry on, and he's separated from mundane things, and it's almost like this configuration is, this is reality. They're seeing reality, and then they kind of, you know, they get this glimpse of how the universe really is, and then it fades to the mundane, which is more illusory and transient and temporary. And because Jesus is with these other guys who have, you know, not died according to uh, the most according to Jewish tradition, like according to this passage, and so there's when they see Jesus, that's as he is. And perhaps for a turn to fiction to get a good you know, example, um, Tolkien does this a lot in The Lord of the Rings, right? They, they see Gandalf for a moment, like he really is on the, you know, like he really is in the blessed realm, but then he kind of cloaks it again for current purposes. And so it's less, he's lit up for a moment as actually for a moment they're seeing reality and then and yeah, Tolkien was obsessed uh, with this moment uh, for fear of becoming Stephen Colbert for a minute. But there are just constant transfigurations. And you see it in the filmmakers of, of this revelation of something the way it really is. And I wonder if this in some ways is part of the secret. Is that if you don't know what's happening, the story you're about to tell is probably going to be decidedly wrong. And we have this moment where the Christ is made overwhelmingly real. Where the story goes. In fact, I don't think there's anything sad about the transfiguration, though it marks an acceleration toward death. Because in some ways, this is the story that makes that death narrative a triumph. It does not look like a triumph. It is a state execution. It is an embarrassing moment, uh, uh, an inopportune uh, 
time where Jesus' followers are very few, but the transfiguration is really the way the world is working. It's really what's happening. And for us, I think this is a deep challenge to us, is we live in a world where, to some degree, the most important things don't make the front page in the newspaper. I mean, this is part of our challenge of trying to live in the church calendar and live in the the weeks of the year in a different way because we're trying to say to ourselves, there's actually things happening that are bigger and much more transformative than the normal things that we might call dramatic. Jim, I'm going to give you the last shot on this. Yeah, Yeah, I think we're tempted to read this as this was a no surprise to It certainly tells the story um, that his death is going to matter. And I think this is what's interesting about reading Mark in light of Second Kings, as we see the narrative of Jesus in a much, much longer frame. And we see kind of the frame of, of how we are to worship as persons. To some degree, we're, we're, we're not always, and, and again, we're not just looking for transfiguration moments, but we're looking for the kind of truths that help us see the progression of God's grace and mercy in this world and the world to come. Mark, you want to lead us in confession and absolution? Thank you guys tonight. You, uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read text in advance, but I've been really, really amazed the last three or four weeks of how deeply insightful your vision of these texts are. So um, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing that. So it's always wonderful to have Casey Toll with us on bass and Skylar Kudas with us on keys and vocals. Thank you guys for playing tonight. And I wanted to do, um, wanted us to do this Tom Waits song for a couple of reasons. And one of those reasons is that uh, Josh sort of has a, a throwdown at all times to, to put in a Tom Waits song. <laughs> and so this was my effort to do that tonight. <laughs> But Josh's throwdown to do that is because Tom Waits' music is so incredibly rich, uh, so incredibly evocative. Uh, these images that come out in this song, to me, th- this song has really helped me through some pretty dark days uh, in my life at different times. And so uh, this simple message of holding on, I think, is, is a very powerful one. Son 
You got to hold 
Thank you to iTunes Radio that made this song pop up <laughs> pop up one night a few weeks ago. And I thought, wow, I've never heard of this guy, but I like this song. Mercy for my brother and 
and sister, my mother, my family. Let there be mercy for my friends and lovers, my foes and enemies. Let there be mercy for my words and wars, deeds and deeds I didn't do. Let there be mercy for every soul in the city. May the Lord have pity over you. Water flow, let the light shine, let the blood go through me like a river winds through the valley, through the meadow, through my spirit and my soul, just like a river goes through the mountains, under the moonlight, let the blood go through me till I truly see the light. so often it's it's difficult to locate ourselves within a story within a narrative if we can't see the end point right like tonight a lot of us have left our coats on because it's cold in here and that's tolerable because we know that at 6 30 we're going to be done and we can all go home and we'll have hopefully heat at home it would be much more difficult to endure if we didn't know that that was the end of the story if we thought maybe we were all going to be locked in here in some sort of Donner Party situation, we're going to have to eat, kill and eat the band or something, right? <laughs> that would reconfigure our experience of it being cold in here in a very different way. Yes, it would. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, it would be a very different experience to come in here and be cold if we knew we didn't have a home to go to. Because the story would have a different ending. And what's interesting in the stories tonight, I think, is that these moments of transfigurations are moments where we get to glimpse an ending. And as we saw in the gospel text, this is an ending that may not even make sense to us in the moment. It may not be something that, that entirely jives with our experience has been. And we may sort of try to hold on to it in a way that it simply isn't meant to be hold, held on to. Right? Peter wants to simply build tents and hang out with Elijah and Moses and Jesus for the rest of his days, which probably would have been pretty great. But that wasn't the way the story was supposed to unfold. But I have to imagine that in the moments, in the darkest moments of Holy Week, when suddenly this person that they had entrusted their lives to was taken from them and was executed by the state, that seeing a moment like this, seeing a glimpse of this ending is the only thing that allows them to make sense of a situation like that. And it, unfortunately, these moments of transfiguration can be rare. Um, I know in my experience right now, trying to finish a dissertation, endings don't <laughs> always seem in sight. And we tend to defer them too. Um, in my experience in academia, there's this 
I think, hilarious sort of deferral of satisfaction that keeps people going where, you know, you're working on your master's thesis and you say, well, I just, I don't have enough time to like get it the way I want it. And you say, well, that's fine. It's just a master's thesis. You get your dissertation, you'll get it that time. And you're finishing your dissertation and they say, well, it's just a dissertation. You have to turn it into a book. You'll get it right then. Well, this is just your first book. You'll get it in the second book. That's really when you're going to... It's the fesh shrift when you retire. That's when you're really going to get it right. There's a tendency to sort of within the moment to, to, to lose sight of where we're headed and to never feel like we've sort of truly arrived anywhere. But to my mind, that's the most important function of something that we do here every week, which is confession, absolution, and then Eucharist. What we're doing is we're hoping to catch a glimpse of how this story ends. We're hoping to imagine together a way forward that might include, uh, it might include something that we don't expect. It might include something that we by ourselves can't imagine, but hopefully includes something when we come together that resembles the kingdom of God. So I want to invite all of you to the table tonight to catch a glimpse of where we're headed, to break bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you, to pour wine and juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you, and to imagine together the future. Welcome to the table.